Hey, welcome folks to the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin here with my colleague and co-host Bruce Kelly. Bruce, how you doing? I'm great, Jeff. Looking forward to some pumpkin pie in the upcoming days. How about yes, you? Yes, pumpkin pie, one of my favorite staples. And, oh, what uh, a treat it is. Yes. But first, we're talking to Kurt McAlpine, the Chief Executive Officer of CI Financial, the Toronto-based consolidator of US RIAs They're like on a nobody's tear. business. Yes, they are a hungry, hungry northern company. Most analysts say nobody, they have not seen anything like this. Your first acquisition of a USRA was in February, and I think you've done 12 so far. They all haven't closed, but Kurt, I want to welcome you to our podcast, and also I want to ask you what is so appealing about the U.S. market? Perfect. And first, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you today. So a little bit of background. So I joined CI Financial in September of 2019, and the board had hired me with a pretty flexible mandate to transform the company. CI by background was the largest independent asset manager and the largest independent wealth management company based in Canada. So very long, very rich, very successful history in the Canadian marketplace in both asset and wealth management. When we, I joined the company, we started down this new strategic transformation centered around three different priorities, modernizing asset management, expanding wealth management, and globalizing our company. I'll skip over modernizing asset management, but as it relates to expanding wealth management, this conviction is really powered by a fundamental belief that I have, that I think the role of financial advice and the financial advisor is more important today than at any point in history. And I think that statement will be true every year for the next 20 years, but probably the next 40 years. If you think about changes in demographics, changes in the pension system, people living longer, living more complex lives, combine that with a lower for longer uh, yield environment, people just need financial advice. And then on the globalizing our company theme, we are the largest independent asset manager in Canada and the largest independent wealth manager in Canada. The market's incredibly mature, it's very concentrated, and we have massive market share. So as a large cap Canadian public company, relying solely on a market with those dynamics for growth is one that I think would be riskier than taking a more globally diversified and balanced approach. So when we think about a company of our size looking to globalize, there's really two primary markets that you can enter. There's the U.S. marketplace or the European marketplace. And my background prior to CI at McKinsey and at Wisdom Tree was actually more globally oriented in nature, centered in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. So very familiar with these markets. And I would describe the decision between the two to be crystal clear. Both markets, U.S. and Europe, are equally competitive. The U.S. is four times larger from an opportunity set for the businesses that we're in. And I would say it's a tenth as complex to operate in if you think about languages and listings and time zones and exchanges and regulators and different cultures and things like that. Plus, I'm sure we can come back to this later. There's an embedded strategic synergy entering the U.S. for a Canadian company because when Canadians retire, they tend to spend a disproportionate amount of their time in the U.S. So with that as a backdrop, we have <laughs> they like the they like the sunshine and the warmth, I guess, Kurt, huh? They they do absolutely. And uh, with that as a backdrop, so we had started investing with conviction in the U.S. marketplace. 
given everything I said about the importance and the role of the financial advisor, we've prioritized wealth management for expansion. And I believe that the RAA business model, the fee-only fiduciary standard with an extreme focus on financial planning and client service, is actually the best model for advice globally. And we've really been investing with conviction ever since. And as you mentioned, we're seven or eight months in now. We've done 10 deals. We're sitting at 16 and a half billion US of assets in our RA business. And I feel great about the initial momentum we've had, plus the momentum we continue to see, which really seems to be picking up after every deal we do gets announced. It just creates more awareness and more interest in the story. Kurt, you guys aren't too late to the market. I mean, this has been, to use the term, you guys are a roll-up, and there's been plenty of roll-ups dating back, you know, Jeff knows better than I do, 10 or 15 years, really. People, I started doing more reporting about this space a couple of years ago to take some of the pressure off of Jeff and just kind of get more knowledge for myself and the paper, you know, my perspective on this. And people were complaining about valuations last year, two years ago already. So. Are you guys too late to the market or are you overpaying for assets or, or, or what? And then I'll shut up and let Jeff talk. Uh, so I would say, one, we're not early to the market by any means. As you mentioned, there have been buyers. Or late. I mean, are you too late to the market? Well, we're not early. I don't think we're, we're not too late either. But there, it is a well-established marketplace where there are a lot of buyers out there. I do think what's making us successful really entering the market just a few months ago is a very differentiated approach relative to most firms that are acquiring. So we have a very flexible uh, model, which I'd be happy to talk about in more detail. As it relates to valuations, I think I hear this criticism a lot from competitors. I think if you look around the deals that we've done, if you talk to the investment bankers that have represented the other firms, we're often not the highest bidder. People aren't selling strictly for purchase price. The firms that we've acquired, all 12 of them, have management teams that are staying in and running and continuing to operate these businesses. So what's more important to them is the strategic and cultural fit and the vision for the firm that they're aligning with. It's not necessarily the purchase price. I mean, this is a very well-known marketplace where there's a lot of very sophisticated buyers. And I think that the assets are appropriately priced and we are not by any means overpaying for these, contrary to what some are, are speculating. Uh, Kurt, you joined, you were hired in September 2019 as the CEO of CI Financial. Prior to that, CI obviously hadn't made an acquisition in the U.S. that, that I know of anyway. And I know you, have, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but why not make acquisitions in Canada? And I know the answer, but I want you to break it down. And what's the pace that you can continue to make acquisitions in the U.S.? Well, we are, first off, we are making acquisitions in Canada. So we've done 12 deals in the US RA marketplace since I've joined. In Canada, we've actually acquired an ETF business, and we also acquired a $10 billion wealth management platform in Canada. So we actually have the fastest growing, I believe, RA platform in the US and the fastest growing wealth management platform in Canada. There are major market differences between the two, though, where Canada is very mature and it's very concentrated. So platforms like the one we acquired this fall don't come along very often. The RAA marketplace is notoriously fragmented. There's thousands of, of, of individual RAAs that are looking to align with a larger platform, looking to achieve scale and, and, and put their business on a different path or, or growth trajectory. So the availability of deals, there's just a lot more opportunities 
in the U.S., but I'm very bullish on the Canadian marketplace as well. Was it part of your mandate to grow through acquisitions this way when you were hired? No, it wasn't part of my mandate, but the board and I had conversations through the process, and the goal was to to transform the company. And CI has been a phenomenal company for an extended period of time. And we're in a very unique position, being efficient operators of asset and wealth management companies for decades, but also generating a lot of free cash flow. So our business, we made about $850 million of EBITDA last year, Canadian dollars, that is, given given we uh, are, are listed in the Canadian marketplace. A lot of those earnings came off of from, how much revenue was that? Off a couple of billion. So very, very profitable. That's pretty good, um, right? Jeez. Yeah. I we, mean, that's... We, the company has been, been very well run. The, 40%? The you're getting 40%? Yeah, we have 40% yeah. margins, exactly. And if you look at... That's outstanding. Uh, I mean, geez. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, the, there's a lot of benefits to the asset management and wealth management businesses. I, I think the challenge is a lot of our economics come from traditional mutual funds, the long only traditionally rented right. asset classes. And some people believe, or many people believe, that that industry is undergoing a rapid amount of change. Hence the hence the ETF acquisition. Yeah, yeah. But we also had an ETF business beforehand, so now we've combined those two and have a larger one. But we're really trying to deploy our our phenomenal free cash flow in the most efficient and effective way possible. And I'll keep coming back to this point, but I think the role of the financial advisor is more important today than ever. So we are leaning in to wealth based models in a way that we haven't historically. So when I started, we had 45 billion Canadian in wealth management assets. If you fast forward to today, we have around 85 billion, almost 90 billion of wealth management assets because we've been deploying the free cash flow generated from our asset management business to expansion in in wealth management in both Canada and the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the wealth management appeal is is obvious to us as well. We we focus on it all day long, and it's obviously obvious to the <laughs> private equity space. And yeah, margins are typically margins in these these businesses that you're seeing, Kurt. My perception of the marketplace is that you know a billion dollar RIA can kick off anywhere from twenty to forty percent profit margin. Is that what you're seeing yeah. in the marketplace right now or, or what? I am. I am. I, that's, that's, that's a pretty good range. It, it's broad. It really depends on the platform, the geographic concentration, the advisors, the advice model. But yeah, the 20 to 40% margin is, right. is pretty consistent with what we're seeing. And are you looking at, when you evaluate these businesses, are you looking at, you only want businesses on the high end of that or the low end? If there are some caveats or every firm is different, you know, they have they're in different stages of growth, obviously, right? They're different stages of ownership where the owners are putting back a lot of money into the business sometimes, right? And the like, how do you, how do you evaluate that? So what we have an objective is we'd like to build the leading integrated private wealth platform in the US period. And the way that we want to do that is different from the traditional, call it aggregator approach. So I don't actually see us as an aggregator. And we can talk about that a little bit. But Uh-oh. essentially what we're now trying to do- Now you're getting tricky with the language. Which we're trying to do is to partner with leading RA platforms. So essentially we are looking for very well-run businesses with above average growth rates, phenomenal client relationships, and great management teams that are looking to stay in and continue to operate the business that are looking for a larger partner so they can achieve more scale and extend more services ultimately to their clients. So I don't have a size. We've done deals directly as small as 400 million, and I've done deals so far as large as four and a half billion. So it's a pretty broad 
range of yeah, it's a big swath. That's a big swath. We're really looking yeah. on quality. That's that's the main quality and culture. Hey Kurt, something I don't think we mentioned yet is that CI has been a publicly traded company on the Toronto Stock Exchange since 1995, but they just listed on the New York Stock Exchange this week, uh, and uh, that as you and I have already talked about, is, is part of your strategy for the future of acquisitions. Until now, or until this listing, I think you've had only cash deals with the RAs you've acquired. And now you expect even some of the deals that are pending closure to be a, a mix of stock and cash. Tell us about that strategy. I mean, the dual listing, do you expect that to appeal more to some of the RA sellers? Potentially, potentially. So the reason for the dual listing, the primary reason is we have through the, the strategy and the strategic priorities that I had mentioned, really glo- the one around globalizing our company. So in a very short period of time, if you rewind to the start of 2020, we didn't have any business in the US. Fast forward to today, we have 16 and a half billion and some great growth momentum, which I think that number will get larger. So we've done a nice job in very short order of diversifying our business mix what we had yet to do because of our Toronto Stock Exchange only listing was to diversify our investor base. So what we wanted to do is to have essentially the diversification of our investor base catch up with the diversification of our business. And the best way for us to do that was to list in the in the US and, and on the New York Stock Exchange. So that in addition to expanding the investor base will also expand the public profile of CI. In addition to it, call it an ancillary benefit, Many RAs have requested CI stock as part of a transaction, which I would be willing to do, assuming obviously it, it, it's accretive and, and makes sense. The, the challenge for them was that it was traded on a foreign exchange and in a foreign currency. So now that we are listed on the New York Stock Exchange, we do have the ability, to the extent that it's of interest to firms that we're acquiring, to pay for the purchase price, some or all, in, in CI stock to the extent there's interest. Yeah, not all listings of, you know, RIA type firms have been smooth. They've been problematic at times uh, and and show the growth pains really of the company, I think. What are you guys doing to make sure that, you know, there is enough trading volume of the shares and and the like in order to give advisors the comfort of taking stock in a deal like this? Yeah, I mean, we're already public. So so this is not a- us It's not an IPO, in other words. Yeah, exactly. So we've been public. We, we trade our, our stock trades quite frequently. You'll see us trade seven, eight, nine hundred thousand shares a day in Canada today. Right. So it's a very liquid, highly That's traded, volume, highly yeah. covered stock. So this is really just extending it and making it available in a new market on a new exchange. Why does an advisor- want to sell to CI Financial. And this is your chance to, I guess, make a sales pitch. But there's a lot of people <laughs> out there, a lot of companies out there trying to buy into this space and that are aggressively buying into this space. What's the appeal of being part of CI Financial? Because most of your deals have been done prior to the, the New York Stock Exchange listing. So it was it was really becoming part of a Canadian company. And, and I know I also want to hear now at, about the referral program that you have set up. Yeah, I think we have a very different profile, a very different business model, and a very different value proposition relative to the majority of buyers in the space. 
And I think if you look at the industry in general, I, I would say XCI, probably 90 cents on the dollar that's being deployed to the space is either direct private equity money or, or money that is funded by private equity firms. By definition, private equity is obviously temporary capital where we're permanent and strategic capital. And if you look at the firm we're acquiring, like I said, people are coming to us to stay in the business, continue to operate, and collectively work together to build the leading integrated wealth platform in the US. So a business with that profile, with those ambitions from the founders and the, and the operators of the businesses, it's very hard to sell to a temporary capital solution because the only thing that you know for certain is that that business is going to continue to get sold away from you and you'll have no ability to influence ultimately where it goes. And there's been times where we're in processes, which I believe we are, are bidding against certain firms who themselves are actually up for sale. So you could imagine the amount of, of uncertainty that comes with going to a more temporary capital oriented solution. Then I would say people can look at our track record. Yes, we were a Canadian company or we're historically a Canadian company, but we've been running wealth management businesses effectively for decades. And that's a perfectly auditable track record. And people can and do get comfort in talking to our advisors and people who have been involved with CI for a number of years looking at our business overall. On the value proposition front, I made this comment a few minutes ago. I don't see us as an aggregator. And the reason I, I say that is we're not trying to force fit anybody into CI's platform. So when I talk to RAs and when people have conversations with us, one of the challenges with going to an aggregator is they kind of force you to change everything about your business to join their platform. Well, with United Capital, right, you become a United Capital advisor, right, Jeff? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all different kinds of yeah, there's well, all different kinds of aggregator. You are an aggregator, though, Kurt. You know, you well, are, we are buying we're putting businesses. it together in a way that we are integrating the platform. So I'd say we're an acquirer and an integrator, but we're doing it leveraging the best practices of the platforms that we're acquiring. So there's not there's no standard CI model that people are getting absorbed or pushed or forced into. We will integrate the platforms, but we will do it with the leaders of those businesses focusing on the business gaps that they've identified as most pressing to improve or enhance their client or employee experience. And are, are you buying 100% of the firm? Are you buying a portion of the firm with, a, with, a, with an earnout over time or a buyout over time rather? Or how is, how is it all structured? We're flexible. We don't have a set framework or business model. When I sit down and our team sits down with the firms that, that we're acquiring, we're really looking at the motivations of the sellers. What are you looking to sell for? What do you want to accomplish as a partnership? And therefore, how much equity do you want to retain yourselves? And so we have done 100% deals and we've done deals less than 100%. And I think people get comfort knowing that we're willing to be flexible as a buyer, as opposed to force-fitting people into a certain percentage mix. Talk about the referral program, if you will, because that to me is kind of unique. I think you said there's something like 330,000 Canadians that that after they retire, they either spend part or all of their time the snowbirds in, in the United States, mostly Florida, which makes sense. Some Arizona too, right? Yeah, it's actually all over the place. So you're right. So we are the primary financial advisor in Canada for 330,000 Canadian families. If you look at the typical profile of a Canadian family that has a financial advisor relationship, a lot of them are in retirement or nearing retirement. And they tend to be mass affluent, 
high net worth or ultra high net worth. The Canadians that fit that profile, once they hit retirement, spend a disproportionate amount of their time in the US. And yes, it is Florida, it's Arizona, it's California, but there are a lot in other states as well. So in August, we stood up for the first time for us a seamless cross-border, call it referral or partnership program. So essentially our Canadian advisors that have existing clients that have assets in the US, which before we entered the space, were forced to hold those assets at other private wealth platforms, now have the ability to talk to their clients, transition it to an advisor who works at CI, and essentially they can collectively service all of those clients' needs together. So the Canadian advisor focuses on the assets that are in Canada, the U.S. advisor focuses on the assets in the U.S., but they're doing it holistically together to make sure that the client has a seamless experience as opposed to two unrelated fragmented experiences. So we rolled that out a couple of months ago. We immediately, probably not surprisingly, had a number of, of families sign up and transition assets to us in the U.S. And our pipeline going forward is, is incredibly rich. So we've made a couple of acquisitions we've announced in the past two or three weeks. One in Florida, the Tampa Bay area, which is a huge hotbed for Canadian snowbirds, really from all over Canada. And we acquired a firm in Houston, which is part of between Houston and Calgary, uh, Alberta, is, is really a, an energy corridor where a lot of executives are moving back and forth between the two markets. So whether it's snowbirds, whether it's people transitioning to live in the U.S. or even on temporary assignment, we can now make that experience seamless. Okay. I wanted to wrap up by asking you, what is next? I think you've already made it kind of clear that you want to be the dominant wealth management firm in the universe, and you're going to do that by, by shopping. And uh, I'm universe. sure, or, or, I'm just teasing, in, orga <laughs> in organic growth as well. I see Kurt, he's, he's, he's CEO of a publicly traded company, so he can't even laugh at those jokes without getting oh, in trouble. Oh, boy. That's too bad. But uh, anyway, Kurt, where does this go? You 12 deals this year. We're going to see 12 deals next year. I mean, what's the what's the end game here? I, I got to believe you didn't start in, uh, I think, February of 2020 thinking you're going to make 12 deals and be publicly listed unless that was the plan. I don't know when the, the New York Stock Exchange listing popped up as an idea, but it seems like a good move. But I'm not asking you what's next here. Yeah, what I would say is what I've been amazed by is how quickly our story is resonating among sellers. So if we were having this conversation in January, I would be selling you on a concept. I think we could enter the US market. I think we could differentiate. I think we could be appealing to sellers. So it's, I feel much better now, fast forwarding eight or nine months where we have 12 deals under our belt and really have an emerging proof point or body of work that firms are interested in, in liking essentially what we're doing and what we can collectively do together. So I can tell you my pipeline, every time we announce a deal, gets, gets better and better. And for us, I don't like to make predictions. I think anyone that does is, is guessing. So I won't tell you or, or, or pretend to guess how effective we'll be going forward. But what I will tell you is I think if the market dynamics themselves remain constant with the market dynamics we've had this year, I'm very confident you'll see us continuing to grow at a similar rate. And obviously, deals themselves are lumpy. Some move very quickly, others others move slowly. But this is a marketplace we are absolutely committed to, and we're investing in it with conviction. We're buying phenomenal firms that you mentioned were growing in organically. But more importantly, these firms we're acquiring are also growing organically. And the goal is for us to continue to take market share and grow our platform as, as effectively as we can. 
Yeah, I had one last one for you, Kurt. Sure. Jeff is our resident RIA expert. I just kind of, you know, try to pick up his pieces, basically. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's true. Come on, come on. But I'm much more of a brokerage guy. I've been here a long time writing about the brokerage business. And it's all merging. The brokerage side and the and the RIA side, the fee and the commission side is all kind of swapping and merging together. And I was just wondering if you guys were kicking any tires on brokerage firms out there too. If you're looking at, if you're busy buying these RAAs, you got to be thinking about the brokerage business too, right? In the U.S., no, we're not actually. I, I think why the, not? Uh, I, um, I'll, I'll tell you why. What I really like about the RAA business model is, is I guess the purity of the business, the fiduciary standard, the fee-only business model, the focus on the client service, the client experience. On the brokerage side, uh, it, yes, while the assets are moving fee-based, a lot of the platforms still remain commission-focused. If you think about the threat- A lot of, of money in commissions, Kurt. There could be, but um, but we're really focused on, uh, <laughs> on essentially the RA business. If you think about regulatory reform, and, and when you look at different levels of in business models, and having lived through this a couple of different times in prior lives, anytime there's a threat of regulatory reform, particularly in the brokerage space, given if you think about the commission models, the conferences and events, the asset management revenue share, the suitability standard, all those different dynamics. Yeah, the are trading disclosures, to, right? Right. You're, you're subject to you massive, really know what you're paying for your muni bond trade, right? Yeah. Uh, and if, you're, subject, if you're a wealthy those client. business models essentially become subject to potential revamping or significant overhauling as a result of regulatory reform. Where if you think about the RA space, I mean, it's it's already the fiduciary standard. So when you're subject to that already, there hasn't been any regulatory reform that I've seen that would change the service model or the offering for an RA platform. So I'm, I'm very comfortable investing in that space. The market is incredibly fragmented still. There's a lot of great platforms that are for sale. And I think we're better off and the clients that we're working with are better off by focusing on that area and really delivering something unique and special and truly differentiated versus fragmenting ourselves across different wealth management areas. Well, the margins are better in the RA business, well, even the business though model it's is different. But the business yes. model is different. The margins, I believe, are much better and it's uh, much steadier. And you don't have to deal with every time, every four or eight years, you get a new president, new administration. <laughs> you're going to have a whole overhaul of, of how people can sell ESG investment funds in retirement accounts or whatever. Yeah, I have been. Um, so prior, a couple of roles ago before CI, I spent about a decade at McKinsey & Company and I looked at a lot of different wealth models and a lot of different advice models. And I can tell you, I haven't seen a better model for advice delivery anywhere in the world than what I see in the US RA marketplace. I just think it's a phenomenal business model. I think clients are incredibly well served by RAs, the standard, the model, the focus of those businesses. And it just leads us to, to really focus and invest there with conviction. That's outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Of course, we launch every Monday, and we want to say give our special thanks to this week's guest, Kurt McAlpine, the CEO of CI Financial. We also want to thank our producer, Stephen Lamb, of course. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave a review on Apple iTunes, and also follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles are at Benji Ryder and at BD News Guy. 
me, I'm Bruce Kelly. And uh, just one note, you can stay tuned for a special Thanksgiving holiday episode of the Investment News Podcast, which is going to post this coming Wednesday. So we'll be talking to you real soon.